Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss the culture and art of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Cinangeli. Andiamo avanti. Renaissance people, we're back at it. Really developing a stronger sense of the Renaissance in Venice, some of the most important players across art, architecture, and literature. I'm quite pleased to say that this is our 15th consecutive episode on Venetian matters, and that while we have by no means covered everything there is to say about Venice, we are on the downward swing, so to speak, as we will close this season of the podcast with our next episode. But I want to cover as much as is reasonable, and so we're going to talk about two significant players in the Venetian High Renaissance but two who lived in Venice and influenced Venetian cultural development, but are indeed not Venetian by any means. And I am talking about Pietro Aretino and Jacopo Sansovino. This is going to be a new approach, because these men have little in common in terms of their works. Pietro's a writer, and Jacopo's an architect and sculptor. But together, along with Titian... Another man who wasn't from Venice proper, the three men composed what some have referred to as a cultural triumvirate, an obvious nod to the ancient Roman equivalent, an attempt at positioning Venice as the new Rome, very similarly to what other cultural centers in Italy were likewise professing for themselves in the period everyone was a new Rome besides Rome that was an old Rome, okay? The three, Titian, Pietro Aretino, and Jacopo Sansovino, they work together by essentially bolstering one another's reputations, be it via Aretino, who's writing to help with commissions or public relations, or Titian, who would create a portrait of, of Aretino, so to speak. They were among the cultural elites that helped establish what is called the Rinovatio Orbis, which is a restructuring of both the architecture and political structure of Venice. Many of the same social events that emboldened Gaspara Stampa's literary circle in the first half of the 15th century is similar to how these three giants converged in Venice together under this new movement, Rinovatio Orbis. Both Aretino and Sansovino were actually from Tuscany, Aretino being from Arezzo and Sansovino Florentine. The Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, that great patron of Titian that we discussed, sacks Rome in 1527, the city that hosted Sansovino until that time, when he departed for Venice, where he would make his career. Aretino too would arrive in Venice in 1527, the same year, they probably knew each other in Rome, and he was already well known for a plethora of reasons. Dearest listeners, I mean this when I say that Pietro Aretino is among the most colorful characters of the Renaissance. He first became well-known as a satirist, writing his first successful piece as a mockery to Pope Leo X when his pet elephant died. Keep in mind, Aretino worked in a similar way that a court painter might, as a courtier who was employed by any given patron, and in this case, it was the Roman banker Agostino Chigi. Aretino's time in Rome abruptly ended when he collaborated with Raphael's pupil Giulio Romano and the engraver Marcantonio Raimondi on what was the most audacious partnership of the Renaissance. 
I'm now going to issue you guys a graphic content warning. So if you are erotically sensitive or are listening with young adults or children, you've been adequately warned because it's going to get raunchy. The exact way in which these three come to, came, came together, that is Aretino, Pietro Aretino, uh, uh, Giulio Romano, and uh, Marcantonio Raimondi, it's not really clear. But in essence, Giulio Romano was working on a series of erotic drawings, either private or for a private commission, that showed in great detail numerous sexual positions. Raimondi collaborated with Giulio to set them in engravings and subsequently published them and was imprisoned for it. These works, 16 in total, are called i modi. It means the ways or, in this case, positions, perhaps. And frankly, they are extremely vulgar and pornographic and not angry mom in Florida pornographic, but rather intentionally and explicitly pornographic. And what does Pietro Artino do when he comes across these Sedici Modi, as they're called, the 16 Modi? He writes a colorful sonnet for each and individual one. Renaissance people, I have read all of these thoroughly, and it would have been quite a fun time to discuss any single one of these sonnets with you, but there is frankly not a single line from any of the 16 that I would dare utter into a microphone to be forever recorded in my voice. They are meant to be vile. They are meant to be scandalous and even funny. And they serve an interesting function of giving us a little bit of a window into the private sexual dynamics of heterosexual intimacy in the Renaissance period. That is all I will say about them. So, with Raimondi was, was imprisoned, Aretino did get him out of prison, but he had to leave Rome after, after writing these sonnets. And he did go back once shortly after, but that didn't work out for him. He ultimately settled permanently in Venice. At that point, serving as a well-known liaison between elite members of various Italian courts, Aretino was so sharp, so witty, that to become the object of his satire, or blackmail, or scorn, had some people in power on edge. The man was really a complete menace, and as hated as he was adored. In his lifetime, he had earned himself a very telling nickname, and it came from the great author of the epic called Orlando Furioso, Ludovico Ariosto, who in that very epic referred to Pietro Aretino as the flagella de principi, that is, the scourge of princes. And did I mention that he was openly at least homosexual, or at least openly and publicly pursued romance with men and women? He famously refers to himself as a sodomite since birth to Giovanni de' Medici, as well as openly working with the Marchese Gonzaga, one of his patrons, to petition the romantic interest of a young man in his court named Bianchino, although his attempt to uh, persuade Bianchino was unsuccessful. I'm actually going to read for you an English translation of the Marchese Gonzaga's final letter on the matter. Now, they correspond back and forth over several letters until the Marchese Gonzaga writes this to Pietro Aretino. Quote, 
I have thus been unable to satisfy you in your desire for Bianchino. I will also have done it gladly. But having understood his reluctance when Roberto spoke to him on your behalf, I don't know who Roberto is, and as it seemed to me that I was unable to do justice to the work that I wanted to do in this regard, I did not think it fitting to plead with him or otherwise to exhort him, nor to have him exhorted in my name, and I failed to think that I should command him, it not being either just or honest to command him in this case. End quote. I don't necessarily have a nuanced way to envision permissible and illegal homosexuality in the Renaissance, but at least for a man of his stature and famed scandal, he enjoyed some comfort in being open with his desires for young men. But this to me reads a lot like a sort of high school drama where your friend has a crush and you have to find out if their crush likes them back and you learn that they don't. So now you have to invent a tactful way to say it without breaking your friend's heart. So what does the Marchese say? I'm just going to read this again. If I have thus been able to satisfy you in your desire for Bianchino, I will have done it gladly. Right? Meaning, I wish I could, but I can't. So sorry, Pietro. Bianchino doesn't like you. And Aretino likewise published a theater piece called Il Mariscalco, which tells the story of a stable master with the inclination towards young men who is tricked into thinking that his master, the Duke of Mantua, insists that he marry a woman only to find out that upon their marriage that his wife-to-be was actually a page boy in disguise. So it's like a gay marriage in the Renaissance. Quite a remarkable history here around the works that Pietro Aretino is putting out as far as the history of homosexuality is concerned. In any case, By 1527, Aretino was in Venice, which was an apt move for his career given the centrality of Venice as far as the number of printing presses the city had, making it a haven for the prolific writers of the period. As a talented man in both slander and flattery and propaganda, he became a central figure in promoting and collaborating the new Renovatio Orbis in which the Doge Andrea Gritti had appointed his contemporary Jacopo Sansovino, the chief architect of the city of Venice, all the way until Sansovino dies in 1570. Have we linked that all together? Lovely. So Sansovino was both an architect and a sculptor, shaping a great deal of the design that makes up the very famous St. Mark's Square, the Piazza San Marco, and the Piazzetta attached in Venice today. That means, dear listeners, that if you have been to Venice, you have already, without a doubt, experienced a great deal of his architecture, but you may not have realized it. This Rinovatio seems to contrast so many things that we have established about the Venetian Quattrocento, this mercantile republic based on social structures of modesty and equality, where the benefits of the city were the benefits of everyone, roughly, more or less. Remember, though, with the Ottomans now the dominant maritime power, change was inevitable with Venice having expanded into the Italian peninsula and adopting new modes of architecture and art, and Doge Gritti sees himself more in line with princes than as an elected 
representative, and peer to his fellow Venetians. It was Sansovino's plan to create an architectural continuity in Piazza San Marco, just as politically Dogriti, Titian, and Aretino are reinventing Venice by navigating around established functions. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people, if you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. Beginning in the first half of the 1530s, Sansovino had to produce an architectural plan that would both modernize and feel natural along with that predominant Venetian Gothic style that we discussed several episodes ago when we looked at Venetian palaces, but particularly in this shared space with the Doge's Palace, the Palazzo Ducale. Remember, though, he is coming from Rome, from Florence, from Rome, and this triumvirate will be working to Romanize central Venice. This starts with what is called the loggetta, or the little loggia that is attached to the campanile, the gigantic famous bell tower in Piazza San Marco. A miniature triumphal arch is this loggetta, rounded Roman arches as opposed to the Venetian Gothic or Islamic Oji arch. Keep in mind, this is nearly directly across from the Palazzo Ducale and mirrors the Porta della Carta, the staple emblems of Venetian Gothic architecture. And in my favorite book on this that is always quoted on this podcast, Renaissance Art in Venice from Tradition to Individualism, author Tom Nichols explains the stylistic tension in how Sansovino harmonizes it. He says, quote, Sansovino suggests continuity by using part-colored marbles and a combination of niche sculpture and architectural moldings. But the loggetta nonetheless has little in common with the Gothic delicacy or the verticality of the Quattrocento gateway, talking about the Porta della Carta. Now, Sansovino brought the idea of Roman-style triumph right to the political and religious heart of the city and more directly associated with the ruling patrician <laughs> the ruling patrician caste itself who were to use the loggetta as a meeting place end quote okay so yes it is roman in style but he's doing certain things to suggest it is stylistically similar to the buildings it accompanies but not quite and all the more important 
are the four bronze figures by Sansovino that depict Apollo, Pallas, Pax, and Mercury, seeing the full integration of allegorical pagan statuary into the core of Venetian public life, standing in for, rep uh, standing in for representations of wisdom, peace, art, and so on, delicately rendered in a more Roman style of sculpture. Beyond the Logetta, Sansovino is further tasked to redesign the Zecca, that is the mint, where coins are minted. Since this is the renovation of a new Venice, so does the building which produced its coin have to reflect itself as an emblem of prosperity. Part of this process was enhancing the design to fireproof the building as well, giving those valuable materials it contained a chance to survive a potential hazard. The Zecca itself actually faces the lagoon as opposed to the Palazzo Ducale, but is part of the series of structures that blends into what is called the Piazzetta, the little piazza in front of the Doge's Palace, and the library which we'll talk about too. So the Piazzetta opens up to the larger Piazza San Marco itself. When you look at the facade of the Zecca today, you see three levels. Note, the upper level is an addition put on in 1558 and not by Sansovino. So looking at the facade, we are looking at the lower two levels, the ground floor and the floor above it, the Piano Nobile, that was begun in 1536. The ground level is designed with tightly squeezed Roman arches wrapped up in what is called rusticated stone, giving a kneaded, fortified look to the building, the deck up that holds all of the money, facing all of the boats that are coming in from the lagoon, okay? The second level above that is Doric, meaning it's showing that Sansovino has knowledge of the Greek orders and of Vitruvius. Um, it is a post and lintel design with a classical entablature, an entablature being the decorative horizontal band that holds alternating blank space and what are called triglyphs or a design motif of three vertical lines. And a classical cornice rests on top. Again, ignore the level above that for Sansovino's design would have ended there. Not long after the Zecca was designed, Sansovino began what is likely his most important and well-known work, the Library of San Marco, also called the Biblioteca Marciana, the Library of Mark Marciana. Okay? The original library was founded as a result of the famous Cardinal Bessarion, the Byzantine humanist who obsessively tracked down and collected manuscripts of classical Greek and Latin text, translated them, reproduced them, much like what we see happening in the Medici Library in Florence. His will, when he died, was to establish a place of public learning by donating his, his library collection to the Republic of Venice. Now, while Bessarion died as early as 1472, his wish only becomes fulfilled under the Renovatio Orbis, under the design of Jacopo Sansovino. Sansovino's library is another two-story building, one that actually connects to the Zecca. So the Zecca faces the lagoon and wrapping around the Piazzetta and serving as opposite to the facade of the Palazzo Ducale is the library. And then that runs into the only slightly earlier Logetta, 
The result is a nearly singular visual spectacle, a sense of Eno's architecture, if you stand on the corner, right? Or you can walk it. In the library, Sansovino is not merely inspired by Vitruvius in this case, um, and the classical orders defined by him, but also the ancient author Pausanias, who in his book called The Description of Greece, details the pillared marble library of Emperor Hadrian north of the Roman Agora in Athens. Pausanias describes it as such, quote, Hadrian constructed other buildings also for the Athenians, most famous of all, a hundred pillars of Fergian marble. The walls, too, are constructed of the same material as the cloisters, and there are rooms there adorned with a gilded roof and with alabaster stone, as well as with statues and paintings. In them are kept books. And looking at the library, the parallel to Pausanias is clear, with some Renaissance innovation. The lower level is Roman Doric, the rounded arches, the Doric columns in between, supporting an entablature. The second level up, the Piano Nobile, is Ionic. That is what the ancient Colosseum in Rome does, which Sansovino is referencing here. It goes Doric, Ionic, Corinthian, composite, each of the levels of the of the Colosseum reflect one of the orders, okay? And most importantly, barely an inch of this facade is not decorated. It is full of decoration, columns, arches, relief sculpture, moldings, balconies. The entire roof is lined with full-scale sculptures and corners have obelisks, Egyptian obelisks. The that detail while it is clearly in favor of a Roman aesthetic, recalls the Gothic pinnacles and the Islamic cresting, those frilly decoration pieces on the Porta della Carta and the Palazzo Ducale, pinnacles and cresting. So he's mirroring them, but instead of pinnacles and cresting, he gives sculptures and obelisks. So even in a completely different style, he's attempting to harmonize the aesthetic and renew it at the same time. Is that not wonderful? There you have the overlook of the great Rinovatio under Sansovino's design for the Piazzetta in the, same, the center of Venice, the Loggetta, the Zecca, and the library. How did we get from discussing Pietro Artino being bisexual to here? Well, these two men, along with Titian, were all working together during this time as a trio of cultural powerhouses, in addition to several others. Sansovino provides a testament to this when he designs the bronze door of the sacristy of San Marco. The main subject of the door is the resurrection of Christ and the deposition, but in a way that's actually very, very familiar to Lorenzo Ghiberti's self-portrait, which he has jutting out from his doors in Florence, Sansovino shows us contemporary portraits to his time. Who? You guessed it, Titian, Pietro Aretino, and Sansovino himself. The triumvirate of the Renovatio Orbis and the flowering of the High Renaissance in Venice. The most important men of the city surrounding the most important moment of the Christian faith, the resurrection, in the most important structure in Venice. Two other important figures also get 
portraits on this door, and that is one Andrea Palladio and Paolo Veronese. We discussed Palladio way back in episode 5, and since we did that, I do not intend to cover him fully as far as this look at Venice is concerned. But he is a late 16th century architect who revives classical architecture in a very different way. The other, Paolo Veronese, is the subject of our next and final episode on the Venetian Renaissance. The great artist whose enormous paintings came face to face with the brutal and potentially deadly forces of the Counter-Reformation and the Inquisition. With that, we close this chapter on the major innovations of the High Renaissance in Venice and set our sights on the end of the 16th century and the end of the Renaissance as it gives way to the Baroque period. Be sure to like and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and anywhere and everywhere else. I thank you all for your continued support. Until next time, arrivederci.